Welcome to the Vitality Radio Podcast, your source for the truth about health, wellness, and real alternatives to drugs, surgeries, and the status quo of healthcare. Here, you'll find information that empowers you to take control of your health. But it's not just about health and wellness. It's about the politics of healthcare and protecting your health freedom. Now, here's your host, Jared St. Clair. Today on Vitality Radio, I am honored to have once again Dr. Peter McCullough joining me. This information that he is about to share is critical information for you, your family, friends, and a whole bunch of people you don't even know. So please give it a good listen. Share this information with those who are willing to hear it. We need the truth out there in this fight for truth against censorship that is going on and running rampant in this country right now. So uh, I uh, am excited today. I've already conducted the interview. Today on the interview, we will be talking about the latest, what's going on with Omicron, what's going on with the vaccines, what's going on with the potential new vaccines to help combat Omicron. And if that makes any sense, we'll talk about really simple, common sense ways to maintain a healthy body during the uh Omicron outbreak that's currently hitting us here in America and across the world, and simple ways to defeat it before it ever even gets to the point of infecting you, ways that actually make sense, options that do not cause side effects. We'll talk about all that stuff today on Vitality Radio. I am, we have about 50 minutes with Dr. McCullough, and every word I think is valuable and worth your ear. So stay tuned, uh, share it with your friends if you like what you hear, and here we go with my interview with Dr. Peter McCullough. This is one of the busiest men on earth, and so I certainly appreciate him taking the time to be with us today. Dr. McCullough, if you wouldn't mind, please introduce yourself. Well, thanks for having me back on the program. It's a real priority for me. Your listenership is, is greatly valued. I'm Dr. Peter McCullough. I'm a practicing internist and cardiologist and a trained epidemiologist in academic practice in Dallas, Texas. I spend about half my time with patients. The other half of the time, I'm an author, an editor, and a clinical investigator. I have over 650 peer-reviewed publications in the National Library of Medicine. That's tops among most doctors in the United States. I have over 50 papers on COVID-19 pandemic response. I've been really focused on this for the last two years as a, like a laser. I've presented now data and analyses in the U.S. Senate, multiple state senates, and I'm a frequent news commentator on your program, but also Fox News and Newsmax, most of the major news stations. And I think one of the reasons why I'm asked is I've, I've been careful to give fair balanced evaluations of the data, and I cite the literature, and it's very important. Well, speaking of being a commentator that's uh, in demand, of course, you are well aware of the controversy with Joe Rogan and the program that you did and the program that Robert Malone did with them. What are your thoughts on that and uh, that controversy? Because we keep hearing the word disinformation. You know, when I give a presentation on the data on early treatment and vaccine safety and efficacy, I use PowerPoint slides, which is common for academic doctors. And the PowerPoint slides that I use have been previously vetted. They're actually continuing medical education approved by the Association of American Physicians and Surgeons when I gave the keynote address this fall in 2021. And so that base slide deck plus additional sources of data that I showed Joe Rogan was completely vetted and certified. What Spotify is trying to do is they're trying to injure Joe Rogan for my presentation of peer-reviewed scientific vetted literature. And I can tell you this much, Spotify never reached out to me. Spotify's medical panel of doctors never reached out to me. And if they did, I'd be happy to go over the data with them. Now this is really accelerated. Oh my gosh, it's going through the media. Now the White House is involved and press secretary Jen Psaki has come out stating that Joe Rogan should be censored. And I tweeted out, I said, listen, uh, you know, I'm happy to meet with the president. I'll meet with the Surgeon General, the press secretary, Spotify doctors. We can all sit down and go over the data. There's about a thousand peer-reviewed publications, for example, on vaccine injuries. So it takes us about a day to go through the data in different categories. And then I think they should understand the scientific 
published studies that they're trying to censor. They should get a sense of what scientific studies, because they're in different journals. They're in JAMA and Lancet and, and various cardiology journals, the myocarditis papers are, they're in infectious disease journals. They'd have to decide what scientific journals and publications that they want to censor. Yeah, and that's the crazy thing is none of this is fringe information. I mean, the Lancet and JAMA are far from harbingers of disinformation about medicine, right? Right. And so I explained to Joe Rogan, given the rapidity of how the information is coming out and how slow the publication process is, in academic medicine, when COVID-19 hit, we did start using preprint servers, which get the data out ahead of peer review, mainly so we can just look at the data. We don't rely on the conclusions, but we want to see the data in years because we need to, or we're trying to make critical decisions. And so the, the data are either in preprint format and pre-med servers like ResearchGate or MedRx or Authoria, or they're in the published literature, which is cited by the National Library of Medicine. So all my, all my slides, I, I'm very careful to give the citation because I always want somebody, if they said, wow, you know, where did this information come from uh, to be able to go to the source information? That, that's how we do business in academic medicine. And, and I think Joe Rogan was very reasonable. He's very perceptive. He's a very intelligent man. And we just went over the information together. I have my computer out. In fact, I gave his producers all the slides and figures. Spotify never asked for them. I'm not sure actually Spotify actually saw the data or if they did, you know, which studies did they want to, uh, you know, have a discussion about? Yeah, it's crazy. The censorship is everywhere, of course, on this. What do you believe is behind all of this censorship? Why are people like yourself? I mean, I love that you put out there when I ask you to introduce yourself, you know, how much, how published you've been, I guess is a good way to put it, because it does mean something. It's like you can't wipe away your entire career because of what you've said over the last two years. Up until COVID, you were as well-respected as probably any medical doctor in this country. And while it, it might to some people almost sound arrogant to come out and say, hey, look, I'm the most published guy out there. People need to understand that you're not the guy who's been throwing out disinformation your entire career. So what's behind all this in your view? I would say since COVID, I'm even more respected. I'm even well, more respected. certainly by people like myself that are actually willing to listen no, to you. I want to say universally respected. I mean, I was on a call yesterday with members of parliament with Senator Ron Johnson. I've told you I testified in the U.S. Senate one time under oath, and I co-moderated the panel a week ago on Monday, the historic U.S. Senate panel. I can tell you, I, I did testify to the Congressional Oversight Panel and the National Institutes of Health in 2007 on a product label expansion. I've been on day safety monitoring boards for the National Institutes of Health and Big Pharma and a former editor of a major journal, current editor of a major journal. So I have a big academic footprint. But COVID-19, if anything, I've become uh, much more uh, prominent as a leading scientist and authority. And so it's been just it's been just the opposite, I think, of what others may, may want. But I can tell you, I've never had anybody email me or text me or just even have a direct conversation where, where they wanted to ex exchange an alternate view. Never. And I, I don't even receive any hate email, to tell you the truth. None. They want to censor you, but they don't want to talk to you. Well, yeah, you, you, you'd think there'd be a hate email somewhere. None. Yeah. None. Wow. It's crazy. Okay. Well, we can move on from that. I'm curious, you know, last time I had you on the show, Delta was pretty much everything that everyone was talking about. Uh, not long after that, of course, Omicron comes uh, rolling along. There's a lot of theories about Omicron that I've heard out there because it's so different than what we've seen with COVID up to this point. What, what are your thoughts on Omicron? Yeah, that's a very good analysis. Uh, Omicron is the most heavily mutated form of the virus, a leading paper by Venkata Krishnan, out of a sequencing company in Boston, inference, very high quality work, it has a nice figure that I show in my grand round slides. In fact, I, I believe I showed it to Joe Rogan and uh, Spotify can take a look at it. Uh, but the Venkata Krishnan paper shows where the mutations are. Many are in the receptor binding domain where the virus used to be able to bind to a human ACE2 receptor and invade the body. So the first inference is that Omicron is far less invasive to the human body. That is great news. Yes. Um, Omicron in a paper from Hong Kong University replicates 70 times faster than Delta. Because you think about how did Omicron overtake Delta? It must have outcompeted Delta in the population. In fact, it mm -hmm. did. It did it by replicating faster. And then Omicron actually generates immunity against Delta. 
And that was shown in a paper by Khan and colleagues from South Africa on the preprint server system. So uh, we know now that Omicron closes the immunologic door on Delta. It literally shut off the ability of any more Delta infections to spread. And then it generated the tallest and narrowest peak that we've ever seen. It was four to five times more frequent than Alpha or Delta peaks in the United States. And it broke through natural immunity, uh, which is very important. So someone who has natural immunity with a prior version can get a very brief mild syndrome a few hours or a day or so. It's basically a very mild, <laughs> clinically irrelevant event. And then it broke through vaccine immunity as the Delta variant did and other variants. So the vaccines have had breakthroughs all the way through, but Omicron, you know, wide open broke through the vaccines. The vaccines had effectively no impact on Omicron. Then we know that Omicron still could involve the remaining susceptible. And there's not that many uh, susceptible COVID naive people anymore. You know, by mid-October, the CDC told us 146 million people have already had COVID. They told us that 200 million plus had already taken the vaccines. We only have 330 million people in the United States. So there's very few susceptible people left. And my clinical experience is when a COVID-adaptable person gets Omicron, it can be more like a cold, like a chest cold for several days. But in a paper by Abdullah and colleagues from South Africa, even early on, the Omicron patients who did end up in the hospital, and that's pretty rare, had an in-hospital mortality of, of 1%. And that was distinctly unusual. We knew from a good paper in JAMA uh, that, that we knew <laughs> patients in the hospital for COVID and the papers by 1040 and colleagues that the mortality for fully vaccinated or unvaccinated was between five and 10% in the 1040 JAMA paper. So now to have a step down in mortality down to 1% for individuals who now you know, ended up in the hospital in, in Africa for Omicron is distinctly unusual. In the United States, we have good early treatment. And I can tell you with early treatment, we can clearly achieve mortality rates less than 1% for Omicron. So uh, the real risk of dying with COVID-19 is essentially gone with Omicron. Even the risk of ending up in the hospital is at this point in time uh, trivial. It, it's like, a, it's like a, a cold, basically. And so uh, we rarely prescribe any medicines for Omicron. The most effective thing, since it replicates so rapidly in the sinuses, is we use virucidal nasal and oral washes. And so how you do this is you take 10% povidone iodine, which is betadine. It's a brown liquid doctors use to sterilize wounds. And then we go ahead and take just a half a teaspoon of that in a shot glass of water, which is one and a half ounces. And it should be as dark as like dark tea. And uh, over the sink, take a bulb syringe or a spray bottle, spray it up the nose, fill up the nose with the liquid, sniff it back, and then spit it out. That is what kills the virus. Gargle with the rest. That can be done once or twice a day for, for prevention. And then if active Omicron treatment, we do that every four hours. And that's highly effective because where the fever is coming from and where the viral symptoms are coming from is from the nasal cavity. So we need to kill the Omicron virus in the nasal cavity. Pills and other things don't work so well because the virus is in the nasal cavity. It's hard for the pills to penetrate there. Okay. That's actually a question I was going to ask is if you're still prescribing pharmaceuticals for that or, or doing something more simple. Well, I mean, our lead pharmaceutical for a serious case, let's say a, a patient who's just doing terrible, a senior mm -hmm. citizen, maybe somebody over 65 or, or older, is we could use monoclonal antibodies. We could use GlaxoSmithKline the sotirivimab product, and I've done that in my clinical practice, and it works great. That's the good news on sotirivimab. And, uh, but that's pretty rare. We can use hydroxychloroquine. We can use ivermectin. Now, hydroxychloroquine supported by 300 studies. Hydroxychloroquine is officially government recommended in over 30 countries. Ivermectin uh, supported by over 60 studies, officially government recommended in over 20 countries. And now we can use the new drugs. We can use Pax Paxlovid which is a combination of nelfenpiravir and ritonavir uh, offered by Pfizer, or we can use molnipiravir offered by Merck, a, a single polymerase inhibitor. So we can use oral drugs. Now, the only one of that group of oral drugs that was specifically tested in Omicron was ivermectin. And mm. the Japanese have just announced the results of a phase three clinical trial where ivermectin was highly effective against Omicron. And that's been my clinical practice, by the way. When I've had somebody sick, who's COVID naive, they have obese or have risk factors and you'll have having some trouble breathing. I've actually used the combination. I use the nasal washes, the nutraceuticals, which are 
zinc, vitamin D, vitamin C, quercetin, and over-the-counter famotidine. But then I've used as the principal prescription oral drugs, a combination of ivermectin plus prednisone combined, almost a condensed McCullough protocol algorithm. And that's resolved the syndrome rapidly. It's resolved it literally in a matter of a couple of days. So and that's Omicron with, with is, Omicron. Yeah, yeah Omicron is okay. very treatable. And the good news is we, Omicron curves are six weeks. So we're actually near the end of our Omicron curve. The, the rates are coming back down. A few weeks ago, I was in agreement that we should probably keep the schools closed for a couple of weeks and just have everybody get through it. And we did because there would have been a lot of absenteeism anyway, mm-hmm. because basically everybody got Omicron. Yeah. It did. For a few weeks, it seemed like everybody in America had a cold. You know, everybody was sniffling and, and uh, coughing and everything. We heard it constantly at Vitality Nutrition. It was pretty interesting. So then you brought up monoclonal antibodies. And I have to ask you this question because the FDA and the CDC both have released statements saying that they're removing monoclonal antibodies in the fight against Omicron because of two things. They say they're not effective against Omicron and they have posed the potential for side effects. And then they double down on that same, in those same statements and say, but you should absolutely get vaccinated or get your booster because that's the best way to stay safe from Omicron. What are your feelings about those statements? In a modeling study by Pulliam and colleagues from South Africa, that's where Omicron broke. By the way, Omicron was originally described in travelers on the border of Botswana, and they were fully vaccinated. So Omicron Mm -hmm. arose in the fully vaccinated. But in a paper by Pulliam and colleagues, and it was just a modeling paper, computer modeling paper, the model suggested that the bamlanivimab product, which is a combination of urtisivimab and bamlanivimab, that that wasn't going to bind to the Omicron spike protein. And also the Regeneron product, which was our workhorse, that's carisivimab and indimivab, that that also wasn't going to bind to Omicron spike protein. So that left sochirivimab, which is the GlaxoSmithKline product, which is a single monoclonal antibody, but it's directed against a glycoprotein side chain of the spike protein uh, that's not susceptible to mutation. So the GlaxoSmithKline product was specifically designed in a sense for Omicron or a resistant strain. And fortunately, it was EUA approved in May of 2021. So we've had seven months to get ready for using the GSK product for Omicron or a related variant. And the disappointment there is that our public health officials, you know, they weren't on their A game. They should have had the supply chain for the GSK product to flow. So it's created great confusion. Who's got the GSK product? Where is it? Some health systems have said we're removing all the monoclonal antibodies. I was like, wait a minute. You know, one of them is perfectly fine. Why remove all of them? You just need the one that works. So uh, this has been a great disappointment. So then there is one, in your view, that does still work. Was that included in the CDC's direction to pull these monoclonal antibodies, or did they say that one is still okay to, to use? You know, I'd have to look at the CDC direction. I hope they didn't include GSK. GSK should be perfectly effective. Listen, I have seen some health system reports and other community system reports that say they're pulling all of them. So we don't want that because we still have one that works perfectly fine. Interesting. So then what are your thoughts on them pulling the ineffective monoclonal antibodies and then doubling down and saying we need to still vaccinate and boost when, in my view, based on what I've read, and I've read at least three studies now that I'm aware of, and I'm sure you're aware of more probably, that say that the vaccinated are not protected against Omicron. Boosting doesn't add additional protection. And of course, we know that the injuries from the vaccine are substantial. What's the thought process on that? They, they use one line of thinking to remove the monoclonal antibodies and another line of thinking to push something that is just as ineffective, at least from what I can tell. Jared, just to be clear, the monoclonal antibodies, my view would be, based on the Pulliam paper, It'd be fine to remove the Lilly and Regeneron products, but we should feature the GSK products. And it's just a Mm -hmm. matter of having that be the the product we use. And I've used it in my practice. And my experience is it works fine in Omicron. Okay. Okay. So we we got that down. Now, in terms of the vaccines, in a paper by Acorsi and colleagues in JAMA, it was clear with one, two, or three shots with Omicron or Delta, the vaccines had no impact on viral load in the nose. So the vaccines were not stopping Delta or Omicron at all, zero. 
There was a paper by Young Zhu and colleagues trying to compute vaccine efficacy for Delta, and it, they got it down to around 20%, which is negligible. And anything below 50%, effectively, the vaccine doesn't work. So okay. we had, and those two papers were in JAMA. So we had data there that the vaccines were uh, not effective. And, and you know that because all the vaccine manufacturers announced new vaccines against Omicron. Yeah, you know, implying that they knew the current vaccines didn't work. And then the most recent thing that came out is the World Health Organization said, listen, we need to rethink the boosters. These boosters are probably not a good idea, that they may weaken the immunity. So the World Health Organization uh, really put some cold water on, it, on the idea of ever taking a booster, largely because the virus mutated so much, it's, it's certainly not uh, being stopped by the vaccines. And uh, the only thing that's out there that's troubling America is th they're seeing reports from Israel, Germany, United Kingdom, Denmark, where the vast majority of people in the hospital are fully vaccinated. But in the mm -hmm. United States, they're still hearing reports of just the opposite, that people who are in the hospital are not vaccinated. And Americans are, are really scratching their head over that because I told you, the majority of people took the vaccines in the United States, number one. Right. Number two, that people who didn't, you know, a large fraction of them have already had COVID, so they can't end up in the hospital. So we're saying, like, listen, how, how could anybody, how could, how could the hospitals be full of unvaccinated? There's, not, there's nobody left. And so what we've learned is the CDC, I think, recently came out with, uh, you know, they featured five separate analyses and uh, making the claim that the unvaccinated are in the hospital. And I don't think those claims are valid for the following reasons, is that first off, uh, they're not randomized data. The only way you can tell if a vaccine would ever reduce hospitalization is to do a randomized trial. And the randomized trials that exist showed that the vaccines had no impact on hospitalization. In mm -hmm. fact, the randomized trials in aggregate for Pfizer, the total number of deaths with Pfizer was 21, and the total number of deaths for placebo was 17. So it's obvious Pfizer from the randomized trials wasn't going to influence death or hospitalization. So all the post-marketing claims that the vaccines reduce hospitalization, I think are invalid. What happens is uh, we've heard our, from our CDC director and state health directors that there's no adjudication of the hospitalizations. We don't know why the people are in the hospital. And because of asymmetric testing, our CDC says to test the unvaccinated, but don't test the vaccinated. I think it's, it's in a sense creating these proportions that are not uh, valid. We're not having any adjudication for are they in the hospital with serious COVID or not. And then lastly, because of the data suggests there's no difference in the viral loads in the nose, uh, none of this makes sense. So, so I think the claims that people are in the hospital as a result of vaccinated or not vaccinated uh, in the United States are not valid because there's no external validity. There's no internal validity. I think it, it basically unravels. Yeah, that's uh, it's some of the things it's, it's so crazy to me and I imagine to you as well where we hear you know what has been determined as disinformation and you know the safe and effective vaccines at this point which appear to be neither safe nor effective particularly against omicron are continually pushed as just that when we have things that actually are safe and effective to fight omicron but those things are being you know cut out from under us with things like hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin and, and what is being said about those drugs, not to mention simple things like you've mentioned, like just simply cleansing your, your sinuses and your mouth. Yeah, it's true. Now, in terms of hospitalization, one more data point came in on Monday, January 24th, and that was by lead attorney Tom Rents and co-counsel uh, Lee Dundas. And you can see how exact I am with the information and where it came from. Tom presented uh, summary information from Project Salus, which is a Department of Defense CMS collaboration. And Project Salus made it clear where they knew who was vaccinated and they knew who was in the hospital with COVID. And the data he presented is just the opposite of what the CDC claims, that more Americans are in the hospital fully vaccinated with COVID than unvaccinated. Yeah, it's really interesting. It, anecdotally speaking, just in terms of who I've talked to who has, you know, tested positive for Omicron, it's, it seems to me a much higher percentage of vaccinated than unvaccinated. And I've I've wondered if that was actually the case and thought it probably is, but how are you going to find that? I'd, I'd love to see that report that you just mentioned. Jared, there is a report. The, the very first CDC report on December 10th indicated that over 70% of patients with Omicron were fully vaccinated. So the CDC has disclosed this. 
So interesting. Yeah, yeah I, so that. I, I think it's clear. And you and I are just reporting the data. We're not giving any opinions. Uh, we're just giving, citing the data. Right. Okay. So that's all uh, really interesting on Omicron. So one more question on Omicron, though. You say that the curve is about six weeks, that we're on the downward slope. Um, first off, with that being the case, is there any real logic in tweaking these vaccines to fight Omicron at this point? By the time those are out, will they have any usefulness? That's my first question. The vaccine manufacturers stated March, but they'd actually have to do randomized trials and then adjudicate the outcomes, have day safety and monitoring boards, clinical ethics committees. You know, to do randomized trials is a big deal. Um, I think they're going to be far too late. Uh, we're already hearing about the Omicron subvariant BA2, which looks like a minor, in a sense, restoration of some normal code. So uh, with the spike protein, the interesting thing with Omicron, it had what's called S gene dropout. And there's a series of primers that are used for the PCR. There's the polymerase, the envelope protein, the S protein or the spike protein. It's just little pieces of code, not, not the entire code, but pieces of code that the PCR uses in the, the nucleocapsid, the N protein, and also is called OFRB. Uh, but the, the bottom line is Omicron had the signature of S gene dropout. So uh, if you ran a PCR that was using the S gene primer, you could see it. Now the BA subvariant has actually had restoration of the S gene primer. So in a sense, it's back mutated. I think it's neither here nor there. The, the bottom line is uh, Omicron's going to be effectively a low-level endemic, basically common cold by the time the vaccine manufacturers come up with the vaccine. It's, it's not going to be very compelling that anybody take any more vaccines. And do you believe that there's there's a curve coming then with this new variant, or is there any way to know at this point? There's no signs of it. We're we're hearing greater proportions in uh, the the UK, but it's not in addition to. It would just be in a sense, uh, it's a subvariant, so it's within the envelope of the Omicron curve, because we know from the paper by Khan and colleagues that Omicron generates tremendous immunity against itself. Once you have Omicron, you're not going to get it again, even the subvariant. Okay, excellent. And you did say earlier, which I, I thought was interesting because I had not read this before, that the Omicron also creates an immunity against Delta then. So, and that's why Delta is essentially kind of dried up at this point. We know by the CDC Nowcast system, you can go on the CDC website and they have stacked bar graphs showing the prevalence of these hyperdominant mutants that have come really as a result of mass vaccine. Nowcast, by the way, shows Omicron in purple and Delta in kind of a, an orange color, how Omicron just stair-stepped it up in a matter of weeks up to 98%. And I give the CDC great credit. They're using, through the Department of Community Health, they're using full genomic sequencing and they're nailing it. Their predictions are not off. You know, people have been critical of the CDC on, on all parameters. I haven't. I think where they're doing a good job, they deserve credit. Hmm. Interesting. So you think that uh, what, what they're showing as far as that goes has been accurate? Because I'd wondered that too, because early on they were saying maybe Omicron was 98, 99%. And that almost seemed un unbelievable considering how prominent Delta was prior to that. But but Omicron is that dominant, I guess, that it's uh, really just taken over. Just to explain, Jared, they use the Nowcast system, which is based on predictions, what they're seeing out of departments of community health and elsewhere okay. around the world. And then the real data come in because they are doing ongoing sequencing of representative samples across the country. Then the real data come in and they basically fill in for the predictions. And they're by and large on money. People criticize them when a stacked bar graph goes down a little bit. And I can tell you as, a, as an epidemiologist and someone who deals with data, I understand what they're trying to do. And, and I give them high credit. They're doing a good job. So those numbers are... are uh... Accurate. All right. Excellent. So a couple of additional questions. So in multiple countries now, Denmark, Finland, the UK, and some others, they're dropping or uh, dramatically reducing uh, COVID restrictions. Here in America, we're seeing some places, including Salt Lake City, where I'm at, uh, trying to reestablish mask and vaccine requirements for a variety of different things. We seem to be moving up in a lot of ways in terms of restrictions, whereas much of the world is going down or away from them completely. What are your thoughts on that? Why why is America seemingly so stubborn on uh, dropping those restrictions where we know that now Omicron and what's happening is far less concerning than anything we've dealt with up to this point? 
you know, when a wall starts to crumble, pieces of the wall go everywhere and you start to see really disparate sets of directions, Jared. So it's interesting, you know, uh, we were in the, the Drop the Mandates American Homecoming Valley on Sunday, January 23rd, and then Monday, January 24th, 2022. And in the District of Columbia, we couldn't go into a Starbucks without having a vaccine card. But yet, if we drove a couple miles into Virginia, we could get a cup of coffee, no mask, uh, no restrictions whatsoever. You know, obviously, it's the same region, it's the same people, uh, it's the same virus. And so that's not cohesive to have public policy literally on such a uh, local parochial basis. Senator Johnson and I on a call yesterday with the United Kingdom got confirmation across England, Scotland, and Ireland. They dropped all the mandates, all of them. No one will have to take any mandated vaccine again. No masks, nothing. They just literally just gave up and went back to work. Uh, Meanwhile, in your location, somebody's trying to revive a mask mandate. So you, you see these disparate actions, but the clear trend is capitulation. And the wall is there are cracks in the wall. The wall is starting to crumble down. I think people are just going to uh, go back to work and, and put this behind them. So then here's a question for you that's a little bit outside the box, but you've, I've heard you discuss it before, this, this mass psychosis that's been brought up. And, and the, I, I have to think, you know, the Neil Youngs of the world and Joni Mitchells, these people that are trying to cause uh, as much uh, trouble for Joe Rogan and Spotify as they possibly can. I... My best guess is they didn't listen to the information that you actually presented. They didn't research the information. They just have their belief system. This is true. This is false. And so we have to stop the spread of disinformation. What do you think it's going to take for people to recognize that the wall really has crumbled, that this isn't what we've been told it is to a large degree? Do you believe that people are going to start snapping out of it? I hope so. I think you're right. You know, Neil Young or none of those individuals reached out to me and I'm very available on the internet, my sure cell phone, email, and, I, and, and to go over the data. And you'd wonder why would they make those statements without actually knowing the information that they're making statements about? That's like saying you, you, you like, uh, you like the, the look of a certain painting, but you've never seen the painting. You, right. you see what I mean? So, so it's obvious uh, they haven't reviewed the information. They haven't reviewed information that they either like or don't like. I think a lot of it's driven out of fear. It's irrational. It's fear-based. Uh, it, it, it's indicative of mass formation that mm-hmm. they, they, in a sense, they've had a prolonged period of isolation, things taken away from them, constant free-floating anxiety. And now they have a single solution. They want to accept that single solution and will go to all levels of absurdity to accept the single solution, even if it doesn't work and it's not safe. Is there any indication to you that people, when when they're now seeing, because this information is coming out uh, even to some degree in mainstream media now, uh, where Omicron, as you said, Pfizer, Moderna, these guys are already saying, hey, we need to come up with a new vaccine because the ones we have aren't working. And those are the people that have been that we've been relying upon to give us the right vaccine, or at least those that believe that the vaccine was the key with all of this. Do you believe that the I'm trying to think how to how to word this, that there are people who previously were kind of all in on vaccines and boosters and masks being the key when it comes to covid, that there is a chunk of that group waking up now because it's just too obvious at this point? I think there are. I think there are more and more people who are just starting to realize it's just, it's so obvious, you know, how, how can this, uh, especially when they get COVID themselves. Yeah. I have so many people in my circles. They've taken one vaccine, two vaccines, three vaccines. They get COVID themselves. I mean, it, it's, it's becoming so self-apparent. They contact me. They say, I got COVID. And I said, well, the vaccines don't work. Isn't it obvious now? <laughs> well, yeah, it's obvious they don't work. Okay. Okay. So, so you are seeing that. Yeah, maybe people have to get the, the illness themselves to realize that they've been duped. A lot of people don't want to feel like they've been fooled. And a lot of people don't want to For feel sure. like they've made a bad choice. So we do need some fair way of bringing them back without any penalties, without any discrimination, without any derisiveness. I, I welcome everybody back. Listen, everybody can make a mistake. It's obvious it was a, make to, a mistake to take the vaccine. That, that's obvious. But no harm, no foul. If people didn't get injured, 
people, you know, just simply had the vaccine not work, no, no harm, no foul. Now for those injured, they really have a claim, particularly those who were forced into it. So the estimates are, we had a doctor's meeting in Wichita, Kansas this last week, and uh, I made a series of presentations. I was presenting with Chris Kobach, who's running for attorney general and then uh, lead physician, Dr. Brian Artis. And we are you know, having concurrent sessions, but we had a doctor's meeting. And I asked the question, what percent of people do you think took the vaccines because they wanted to, because they thought it was a good health intervention? Mm-hmm. And then what percent took them because they felt forced into it? They, 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 they knew it wasn't good for them, but they took it anyway. And, pe- and the average answer, this is unofficial, uh, was right. 50%. It was 50-50. That probably half the people took the vaccines they knew they weren't going to work. They knew they weren't safe and they were forced into it. And I think those people are probably. Angry. Yeah. And, and certainly uh, those who have been injured uh, have every right to be, not to mention the, the fact that we know what we don't know about these vaccines is probably a lot greater than what we do know in terms of potential long-term problems associated with them. I want to ask this question because I think it's really important for, and I already know, I know the answer, but I want to make sure the audio, audience does. You have been labeled now as an anti-vaxxer. Uh, you've heard that, right, about yourself? No one's ever confronted me or ever uh, used that. I've, I've, I've actually, I've heard it a couple of times. No one's ever, you know, sat down and had a discussion where where they, you know, say something about me and I respond to it. No, I've never, never had a chance to respond to it. But I can tell you, broadly, I told America... On the steps of the Lincoln Memorial, I said it in Senate testimony. It's in the record. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've accepted all the vaccines that are on the vaccine schedule. So have my children, my family members. I've traveled to India. I've taken more vaccines. I accept and use vaccines in my clinical practice. Uh, so, you know, I, I, you know, no one's ever said anything otherwise to my face. That's interesting. Yeah, I've heard. I've heard it said about you and Dr. Malone and. I believe that the reason people say these things, it's like calling somebody a conspiracy theorist. You call somebody a conspiracy theorist about whatever it is that they uh, are saying, and immediately people want to just be dismissive. Oh, well, he's just a conspiracy theorist, or he's just an anti-vaxxer. You'd think if someone really meant it, though, that they would, you know, basically, you know, they would discuss it with me. So I don't think they, I don't think they really meant it. Yeah, I don't think they meant it, No. It's, it's, I I wanted to clear it up just because I want to make sure people understand where you're really coming from and what your, you know, what your history has been with all of this stuff. And that when you talk about these vaccines being a mistake, you are talking about these vaccines. Yeah, the 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 genetic vaccines. So Pfizer, Moderna, Johnson, Johnson are genetic vaccines. I think it was a mistake to use gene transfer technology in broadly in the population. I think that was a giant mistake. I published that actually in the summer of 2020. I said, this is a mistake. Before yeah. they even came out. Well, you weren't alone either. A lot of people were saying that back then. Yeah, Jared, I don't think anybody really means that I'm an anti-vaxxer. I don't think <laughs> they mean that. Because because if, I don't know I think, how they could. Yeah, I don't see how they could. And not only that, but I think if they did, they would they would, you know, want to engage in a cordial conversation on that. No, no one has. So I, I think we can dismiss that. It's very interesting the things that people say, and and like you say, I think oftentimes simply out of fear. You know, one thing I'm I'm gonna give you a quote that maybe you've heard, but uh it was Graham Nash from Crosby, Stills and Nash, you know, joining in with with uh, Neil Young and Joni Mitchell, and he, and he said, "There's a difference between misinformation, in which one is unaware that what is being said is false, versus disinformation, which is knowingly false and intended to mislead and sway public opinion." The opinions publicized by Rogan are so dishonest and unsupported by solid facts that Spotify becomes an enabler in a way that costs people their lives. Well, Rogan responded to that. He hasn't expressed any opinions. Right. <laughs> yeah, he hasn't expressed any opinions. So he's just, in a sense, kind of the media platform, Spotify is a media platform. I'm the one who reviewed the data. And I can tell you, you know, Neil Young and others, they didn't sit down with me and we could go over, you know, it's curated, vetted, continuing medical education information data. We could go over it together. So it looks like they're off, aren't they? They've got it completely wrong. <laughs> So Rogan didn't express any opinions. I went over continuing medical education data. So it looks like they're out in left field. I I feel sorry for them. Yeah, it's just, it makes no sense because if people are willing to actually look at what you're saying, they can't possibly call it 
disinformation. It just yeah, I, doesn't I, work. I, I, I think those individuals are, are when they look at, I think they're, I think they're embarrassed uh, for themselves. So I'm, I'm a bit embarrassed for them. <laughs> I tend to agree with that. Yeah. All right. So I have just another question or two, and then we're going to let you go because I know you have something right after this. I am curious what your thoughts are about the uh, FDA approval of the Moderna, I believe it's SpikeVax, and also, uh, of course, a few months ago, Comirnaty from Pfizer. What what does that mean, and how do those vaccines differ from the actual emergency use authorization vaccines? Right. So first off, all the vaccines are emergency use authorized, meaning- right that they're still part of research. When people sign the consent form, the consent form says research or it says uh, investigational. EUA means we don't know if it's going to work or not. The consent form says that. The consent form says you can die afterwards. It says that. That's EUA. What happened was BioNTech got a biological licensing agreement and Moderna just got a biological licensing agreement. Now, what that agreement means is that if these companies do the additional studies uh, and commit to them. And if they are able to produce a full package insert with the fair balanced information on vaccine and safety and efficacy, then they could move forward and apply for approval. But what they're really trying to get approval on is the package insert and then a sign off on the additional studies. And, and all of that hasn't happened yet. So at this point, it doesn't mean a lot uh, until a lot more research has been done, essentially. Yeah, I'm talking the commitment to do research. And then, you know, people are going to look at the package insert very carefully. How how are they going to say that thousands of people have died with their vaccine on their package insert? I think I think that's going to be the real tall task. How, how, how do they break that news on the prescribing information? Well, and that brings me right back to the last question I wanted to ask you. You, you mentioned the vaccine injured. I don't want to gloss over that because it matters so much. I've had Brianne Dressen uh, on my show. I've got Dr. Joel Walskog coming on next week. I'm going to be talking to quite a few of the vaccine injured because I feel like their stories need to be heard. So what, first off with VAERS, uh, you know, the Vaccine Adverse Events Reporting System, it's been around for a long time, 30 plus years. We know that the numbers have skyrocketed uh, in terms of reporting. It's, it's not even, well, the COVID vaccines trump every other report combined in the history of the VAERS system. So what are your thoughts on what's been reported versus maybe what the real numbers might be? Well, the U.S. CDC VAERS system, when it's submitted, there are temporary VAERS numbers, and then the CDC actually has to vet them to make sure that a death occurred or a hospitalization occurred, and then they get permanent VAERS numbers. So the open VAERS data system is the overlay that gives the permanent VAERS numbers. And there's a, an algorithm that's used to generate the report. So I'll give you the current numbers, Jared. Through okay. January 21st, January 21st, 22,607 deaths. There are 121,597 hospitalizations, 115,335 urgent care visits, 40,069 permanently disabled individuals, and now 29,716 cases of myocarditis, pericarditis, 38,603 severe allergic reactions, and 25,707 life-threatening reactions. This report that the CDC is giving America breaks all records by many thousands of miles in terms of being unsafe. So you and I would be secure by saying that these products are the most unsafe biological products in all of human history. And it's true. This is worse than any product disaster we could ever imagine. These numbers are huge. And we know from a prior paper by Meisner and colleagues published in pediatrics that 86% of these reports are by doctors, nurses, right. other healthcare personnel that actually think the vaccines cause the problem 14% it's done by the patient or the family. And then we also know that it's an underreporting. And so the biggest thing is on death and underreporting on death. And the, the most recent news I have is a paper from Columbia. Pantasas, Zatos, and Seligman have published using census data and vaccine administration data, looking at a 20-week window after administration, that the number of Americans that have actually could have died with the vaccine 
could be as high as 187,000. So that means the VARES could be about a 20-fold underreporting since VARES is about half domestic, half non-domestic cases. So it could be 20-fold underreported, uh, but are absolutely uh, uh, massive. So we heard reports in the last two weeks from the actuaries in Ohio, other states, that mortality ages 14 to 40, 18 to 49 in the United States is up 40%. And they're pretty clear on this, that it's not uh, COVID-19 respiratory illness. These data were presented in the U.S. Senate panel by Dr. Aaron Carity, former uh, UC Irvine professor. So this is in the Senate record. We have a report out of the heart group in the U.K. where actuarial mortality age 0 to 15 is up. So the first time now we see mortality is up in children. So these are disturbing trends. The only change year on year of 2021 to prior years is the introduction of the mass vaccination program. Yeah, 40% from 18 to 49. Did you have a number on the uh, zero to 15? I didn't catch that. No, I just heard the number was up. I don't it's have up, but you don't know how much. The margin. If you look up heart group, H-A-R-T group, you can see the data. Remember on actuarial studies, there are limits uh, swing one way or the other is about 10%. So you get to a 40% swing that starts to actually influence insurance uh, premium rates and things like that. So yeah, and uh, my understanding is there's uh, they're they may be making a lot of changes to how they're offering these insurance policies because of the fact that they're not going to be able to afford to pay out all the uh, extra deaths. Well, one of the important questions, if I was an insurance company, I'd be asking, did you take a COVID nineteen vaccine? So wow, yeah, that's a. <laughs> That's a strong, strong question. Oh, my goodness. Well, uh, our time has come to an end. I could go on with you for hours. I greatly appreciate your time and your uh, willingness to visit with me and my my audience here on Vitality Radio. Keep up the good work. I appreciate everything you're doing, and uh, we'll continue to follow you and support your uh, your cause. Uh, if, you, if people want to be more involved with what you're doing, uh, more aware of what you're doing, what's the best way for people to follow you? Best way to follow me for information is kind of a fun way to do it is by America Out Loud Talk Radio McCullough Report. That's a weekly uh, report I issue to the nation in writing and in an audio podcast style. And it's not just me. I have uh, guest speakers. This week, I've just done the report. It's going to be excerpts from the U.S. Senate panel, a second opinion. So there'll be dozens mm -hmm. of different speakers. I have a music section when I have time. I'll have music that reflects the the issues of the day in there, at least one or two clips I try to do. I, I get a ton of suggestions for music. They want to be on the McCullough Report, that little section. I, actually, you know what, Jared? Eric Clapton is the one who convinced me. He said, you know, why don't you mix it up and have a little music in there? People will, will like your podcast. It was a great suggestion. Music is powerful. Yeah, and, and music is powerful. And then the other thing is I'm the chief uh, medical advisor for the Truth for Health Foundation. It's a voluntary position, but a lot of people want to get involved. They're interested in advocacy. They're interested in treatment protocols, uh, lists of treating doctors, how to, how to help others get through the COVID-19 pandemic. I think the Truth for Health Foundation is a terrific way to do it. Excellent. I'll list these on the uh, podcast notes for people that want to look deeper into them. We'll, we'll provide links. And what is the best way to find your podcast? Is it on all the podcast networks or is there a specific one? Yeah. So if you go to America Loud Talk Radio, the McCullough okay. Report, and then it gets a, a showing on Saturday, Sunday with an encore. And then on Tuesday, it goes on the podcast network. So it goes uh, Apple, iHeart, and all the major podcast oh, platforms. Excellent. All right, doctor. Sure appreciate your time and efforts. And like I said, keep up the good work. We appreciate okay, thank, you. Thanks for having me on, Jerry. Great show. Absolutely. Bye-bye. All right. That was Dr. Peter McCullough. Thank you so much for listening to this very important podcast, this special episode of Vitality Radio. Again, thanks to Dr. McCullough for taking time out of his crazy busy schedule to talk with me and with you. I want to try to give you an idea of how important I think voices like Dr. McCullough's are in the world that we're in right now. Right now where censorship is running rampant and the other side of the story just simply isn't being heard by so many Americans and so many worldwide. We need voices like Dr. McCullough's, men who have proven it in the field throughout their career that they are not 
the uh, run-of-the-mill conspiracy theorist or quote-unquote anti-vaxxer or whatever else they, the powers that be and mass media would like to call them. Dr. McCullough is far from any of those things. This guy is a dyed-in-the-wool medical man. He has spent his career researching, published over 700 papers, is, is and has been for years considered one of the most studied and most cited doctors uh, in the history of modern medicine. This is a voice that needs to be heard. Please do your part to share this message. Share this podcast as far and wide as you possibly can. Post it all over social media. Share it with your friends and family. Yes, it's great for Vitality Radio, absolutely. But more importantly, it is great for the world that we live in to have truth be heard, especially by those who have not yet had the opportunity to hear the voice of guys like Dr. McCullough. So please join me in getting the word out and making sure that people at least have the opportunity to hear the truth about what's going on with COVID-19, with uh, Omicron, with the vaccines, and all the things we just discussed on Vitality Radio. Of course, if you have questions about anything you did here today on this show or any other episode of Vitality Radio, you can call us at Vitality Nutrition in Bountiful. It's 801-292-6662. That's 801-292-6662. 6662. And if you want to follow Dr. McCullough, he's easy to find online, especially at the link that we have provided in the description for the podcast, uh, where you can find his weekly podcast and how to join in and get the weekly updates from Dr. Peter McCullough. Thank you so much for listening to this special episode of Vitality Radio. I have another one coming for you next Wednesday that I think you're absolutely going to love. So stay tuned for that. I'm Jared St. Clair, and this has been Vitality Radio. You've been listening to the Vitality Radio podcast. Enjoy your week. In the meantime, Jared will be feverishly searching for the latest nutrition info to educate you on and wading into mounds of propaganda to help steer you through it. Vitality Radio is researched and written by Jared St. Clair, Produced by Elizabeth Joy Windham with very limited help from Jared. Our awesome music is by Brian Bob Young. Support Vitality Radio by subscribing and giving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, YouTube, or your favorite podcast source. Don't forget to follow us at Vitality Radio on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Please let us know your thoughts about this episode by using the hashtag Vitality Radio Podcast. And if you like what you hear, go tell somebody with a share, a screenshot, or an airdrop. Thank you. Hello, everyone. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode of Vitality Radio. Just a reminder that this podcast is for educational purposes only. This podcast has not been evaluated by the FDA. This podcast is provided with the understanding that the information shared is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. This podcast is not a substitute for professional care by a medical professional. Thank you.